Question six, is there a command in the Bible to baptize believers' infants? And of course, you, you know the answer, you know the catechism, and you know your pastor's a Baptist, and of course the simple answer is no. Um, there is not a command in the Bible to baptize believers' infants. Now, I, I've never actually met or read of a Reformed paedo-baptist who would answer the question differently. There may be one somewhere, but I've, I've never met him or her, all right? So, interestingly, perhaps to some of your minds, uh, this is not a question we disagree on. Um, is there a command in the Bible, and specifically in the New Testament, but is there a command anywhere in the Bible to baptize believers' infants? No. Now, there are four verses in Scripture about baptism that are a command. There's only four. There are many, many more verses that explain what it means or give examples of it. But there are only four times where baptize is a command. So we can look at those very quickly, and it will become clear that infants are not uh, included, at least under any ordinary understanding of these verses. Here's the first one. Of course, it's the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19. Where who do you baptize? You baptize disciples. Disciples. Go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The second text is Mark 16, 16. That's simply a parallel text to the Great Commission. And again, it says that those who believe are to be baptized. So again, no different answer. A third one, Acts 2.38. You remember Peter has preached, the Holy Spirit has come upon both him and many of his hearers in power. They say, what must we do to be saved? And here's the command. Here's one of the four places where to be baptized is, a, is an imperative. Repent and be baptized, Peter says. Well, again, clearly in the context, this is people who have repented, people who have been convicted of their sins. And in John the Baptist-like language, he says, be baptized. And then the fourth example is in Acts 22.16. This is the one I tend to forget about. Most people perhaps don't know about. But Saul, or Paul, he had both names before and after as a Christian, one his Jewish name and one his, his Roman name. Uh, Saul, a man decisively converted, is commanded to be baptized. So in none of these four verses is there an explicit command to immerse infants. Rather, in these four texts, those who are disciples or those who believe or those who repent are to be baptized. Right? Now again, uh, that's not really a Baptist position. <laughs> uh, virtually all Reformed uh, covenantal Protestants answer that the same way. Uh, the great Scottish Presbyterian theologian of the 19th century, James Bannerman, 
says regarding the Great Commission passages we have reviewed. It is abundantly obvious that this language refers to adults, end of quote. And I'm going to, I'm going to give a lot of quotes in support of, of these positions, and none of them are, are from Baptists. Right? None of them. J.C. Ryle, uh, admittedly an Anglican, but certainly an evangelical um, Protestant, commenting on the same verses, quote, the point settled by the text is not so much what ought to be done with the children of Christians as what ought to be done to heathens when converted. Amen. <laughs> Dr. Wall, uh, a, a famous um, late 1600s, early 1700s um, uh, pastor says this, speaking of the Great Commission, quote, there is no particular direction given what they were to do in reference to the children of those that received the faith. In other words, the Lord gave no instruction about the baptism of infants. More modernly, Louis Burkhoff, one of the best single-volume um, um, theologies, systematic theologies, says this in that book. There is not an explicit command in the Bible to baptize children. That's right, there's not. We've looked at all of them, and it's not there. All right? John Murray it is only too apparent that if we had an express command or even a proven case with apostolic sanction, then the controversy, that is, over should infants be baptized or not, would not have arisen, end of quote. Right? Some might say, yes, but what about the Old Testament command to circumcise children? Well, that's a command to circumcise. It's not a command to baptize. If it does apply to baptism, that would be a deduction. It's not a straightforward command. It's something by way of inference. And so we will deal with that in the third category of, of answers, right? But just in the straightforward sense of, is there a command in the Bible to do this? The answer is no. And again, virtually everyone agrees with this. Any questions about that point? All right, then let's go on to uh, number seven. Is there an example in the Bible of believers' infants being baptized? Is there a, an example, a clear example? Not a maybe if you think about it this way or that way, but is there a clear example in the Bible of believers' infants being baptized? And again, the answer is no. And again, that's not really a, that's not really a Baptist answer. Virtually all Reformed covenantal uh, Protestants answer that question the same way. Right? There's a bit more difference here, but, but not much. We arrive at this conclusion simply by going through the New Testament baptismal stories. 
John baptized no infants, but only those who professed repentance. During Christ's ministry, he and his disciples are never shown baptizing anyone but disciples. His baptismal work is summed up in John 4.1. He made and baptized disciples. That's it. And again, our Reformed Paedobaptist brethren overwhelmingly agree with this. Speaking of John, uh, Thomas Scott, the friend of John Newton, and an excellent commentator, by the way, even though he's not well known, says this, it does not appear that any but adults were baptized by him. Thomas Boston, John baptized none but those that confessed their sins. Francis Turretin, right? hundred years after Calvin in the same city. John admitted none to baptism, but those who confessed their sins, his business was to baptize adults. Couldn't have said it better myself. Benjamin Warfield, B.B. Warfield. Nobody supposes that Jesus and his disciples were in the habit of baptizing infants. Well, I think B.B. Warfield is wrong. I think there are a few people who suppose that Jesus and the disciples were in the habit of baptizing infants. But again, the overwhelming testimony of Reformed Covenantal Protestants is no, John the Baptist, nor um, Jesus and his disciples, nor in any of the examples in Acts, etc. No, they don't include any clear examples of the Infants of believers being baptized. Now, there are two sets of New Testament texts that are sometimes used. And that's why I said it's, it's Mr. Warfield's, I don't think, quite right. There are a few people who, who, who will argue at least kind of indirectly about these two texts. The first one is, um, is the blessing of the children. This is in Matthew 19, verses 13 to 15. The story is also told in Mark 10 and Luke 18. So it's, it's in the synoptic gospels, all three of them. You know the story. Little children, um, and presumably others, but little children uh, come and the disciples shoo them away. Uh, the master doesn't have time for this. And Jesus says, oh no, bring the little children to me. And he brings them, and depending on the account you read, some of them are probably of the age where he literally has to just take them in his arms. Others perhaps can toddle around. These are very young children. And he blesses them. That's the story. Note a few things. First, there is no water in any of these stories. There is no baptism here. Now, there's something very important going on here. Make no mistake about it. But it isn't baptism. As J.C. Ryle says, a direct argument in favor of infant baptism, this passage certainly is not. John Murray again. These words do not offer proof of infant baptism. Now, many Paedobaptists say that these verses support an indirect argument, but again, remember, that's the next 
And that's the third and final way of knowing what we ought to do. But in terms of just a plain, clear example, no, it's not here. You might argue from blessing to baptism, but there is no baptism here in the story. As one uh, man who used to be a paedo-baptist and became a Baptist says, I think, and I think this is a particularly telling critique of that view. Um, he said, had the disciples been accustomed to seeing babies baptized or baptizing them themselves, they never would have hindered their being brought to Jesus. Right? What's the, what's the clear testimony of all three of these stories? The disciples had no interest in these children. They were just like all the other Jews around them. Uh, women and little children were, were not worth much. They were scarcely human. Well, if they had seen them regularly being blessed and prayed for and baptized and brought into, on and on it could go, but including baptism, surely they would not have said what they said. It simply doesn't make sense. But even if you don't find that particular logic compelling, the simple truth is these texts are not an example of infant baptism. All right? Now, what's the other set of New Testament texts that are sometimes alleged to be examples of infant baptism? And, and this is the only one that I know of that I have friends in the Presbyterian ministry who say that's the reason I'm a paedo-baptist. That right there. And it's this, the household baptisms. Household baptisms. There are a number of these accounts. I think there are six. Maybe it's five. Um, uh, accounts in, in, uh, in Acts and the Epistles. The idea is if entire households were baptized, surely in at least one of these or two of these, probably many of these, there were infants. And if the household was baptized, then infants were baptized. I mean, the texts say at some points that the whole house was baptized. Therefore, surely infants were baptized. There are uh, five examples of these household baptisms in the New Testament. Some paedo-baptists will immediately say, no, no, these are not, no, these are not real examples. No, nothing can be argued from them. This isn't it. But there are some that do. Um, and, and this is probably the most common of the command and example passages that people rely on. So let's quickly look at each of these and see if it See if this argument holds water. The first one is the example of Cornelius in Acts 10. Now that's a long passage. We're not going to read it all. It's, it goes on for almost two chapters. But I think you know the story well, so let me try to sum it up. In Acts 10, 1 and 2, he and all his family, that is his household, are said to be devout and God-fearing. So whoever made up his household 
was old enough to be devout and God-fearing. That, according to the Bible, characterized his household. In verse 24, he called together his relatives and close friends. No infants are explicitly mentioned. Maybe there weren't any there. Maybe they were, but if they were, they weren't in view. They're not being considered. In verse 44, all who heard the message are given the Holy Spirit. Everyone? Well, at least everyone within view. The entire household. And so, in verses 47 and 48, the household is baptized. This is summed up in chapter 11, verses 15 to 17, as they received the Holy Spirit, they believed, they repented. So what is this an example of? This is an example of believer baptism. Everyone that we know about received the Holy Spirit. Everyone in this household believed. Everyone in this household who was already devout and God-fearing gained more knowledge, repented, and was baptized. We may not speculate with any certainty that there were or were not infants in this entire scene. If they are, uh, if there were in that household, they're clearly not in, in the view of all these things happening. And if they aren't, well, then this doesn't prove infant baptism. Right. The next example is uh, Stephanus um, in 1 Corinthians 1.16, where it says that Paul baptized the household of Stephanus. You say, well, Okay, were there infants or not? Well, in that verse, again, we don't know. You can't argue from silence that they were. You can't argue logically from silence that they weren't. But this is not the only place in 1 Corinthians that talks about the household of Stephanus. At the very end of the book, in chapter 16 and verse 15, it says that people like this are to be honored because they devote themselves to the service of the saints. Well, whoever the household of Stephanus is, whatever Paul means by that, that group is a group of believers who have devoted themselves to the ministry of the church there. That can't include infants. It doesn't include infants. The next example is Lydia in Acts 16. Again, you know the story, I think, fairly well. Um, she, she meets Paul, she and, and her household, it says, are, are down at the river uh, to pray, to worship God. Paul meets them there, and, um, and she believes. And her household uh, believes. Now, listen, listen to what one man says about this. And this is um, J.A. Alexander, the, the great Princeton Presbyterian. Her household, literally her house, supposed by some here to mean her family, by others perhaps 
her assistance in her business, but both are mere conjectures. There's nothing in the text to decide the controverted question about whether children were baptized on this occasion. We simply don't know. What we do know is that the house believed and was baptized. That's all we know. Next, Philippian jailer, Acts 16, 31-34. Here's what it says. They replied, and listen to the language carefully, they replied, uh, remember he says, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. When they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into the house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. You see, belief was a necessary requirement for his family to be baptized. Were there any infants or children so small they couldn't yet believe? Well, apparently not, because it says his household, his family believed. It's either that or they simply weren't being thought of, because, of course, in Paul's mind, infants can't repent, believe, etc., and therefore be baptized. But it was those who believed who were baptized. Finally, Acts 18.9, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, now listen to what it says carefully. Crispus and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Who was baptized? Oh, his household. Let me ask you again. Who was baptized? Those who believed. None of these texts state or even hint at the presence of infants. And so they cannot be examples. And so we agree again with John Murray when he says we do not have in the New Testament an overt and proven case of infant baptism. Richard Baxter, the old and rather odd at times Puritan, I conclude that all examples of baptism in the scripture mention only the administration of it to professors of saving faith, and the precepts give us no other direction. In other words, there are no examples and there are no commands to baptize infants in the New Testament. Any questions before we move on to the third and, and final uh, question? of um, deductions or inferences or arguments because other things are true, then the baptism of infants must be true. Questions or clarifications? All right. Um, yes, we're going we're gonna to plunge ahead and we'll see how far we get. All right. Is there a certain inference from the Bible 
to baptize believers infants? And again, our answer is no. There are no necessary or certain deductions to this effect. All right? Um, and let me give you several reasons why we believe not only there isn't, but there even, in a certain sense, can't be a necessary, sure deduction in Scripture for infant baptism. Here's the first one, and it really boils down to this. <laughs> because I'm a Reformed Christian, because I believe in the regulative principle. That's, that's really the reason. Here's the, here's the short answer. Um, and I think you have it as number one under eight in your, um, on your sheet. Is there a certain inference from the Bible to baptize believers' infants? One, no, because this violates the regulative principle of worship. This is a violation of the regulative principle of worship. Remember that the regulative principle says that we order the church and especially God's worship only as he reveals in Scripture. Famous texts and examples we won't go into now. But I will quote you the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 20, paragraph 5, which says, We only give to God in worship the, quote, sacraments instituted by Christ, unquote. Well, how does infant baptism violate this? As follows. Baptism is revealed in the New Testament in numerous plain texts that explain who are its proper subjects and what the conditions are for baptism and what baptism portrays or means. There is uniform agreement in the teaching and practice of baptism by John, and then Christ, and then the apostles. And both Baptists and the vast majority of Reformed paedo-Baptists agree with that. But what does infant baptism do? It takes the New Testament's silence on infant baptism, and remember, We've just asked the question, is there a command? Is there an example? And we've all pretty much agreed the answer is no. So we take the New Testament's silence on infant baptism by command or example, and we say that since baptism is the New Testament equivalent of circumcision, well, then we have warrant from God. But, but wait a minute, says the, the Baptist, and some strict regulative principle people, that logic isn't the institution of Christ by command or example. Instead, this is a practice that overturns the plain, positive institution of Christ and the apostles and substitutes something else for it. It's a man-made ceremony, 
That's our conviction. And I say man-made because you can't have good and necessary consequences from silence. I, I trust most of us understand that an argument from silence is no valid argument. If nothing is said about something, you can't argue one way or the other from the data of it. There is no data. There is one thing you can say about silence. It's silent. Silence isn't revelation. Silence isn't positive teaching. It provides no content for sound deductions. And remember, the regulative principle requires institution from God And there simply isn't that for infant baptism. Let me give another example to try to support this idea. One of the things that many particular Baptists, many Reformed Baptists have learned, and we are so thankful <laughs> of learning this from our Presbyterian brethren in particular, is the regulative principle of worship and good and necessary consequences. Well, historically, Reformed churches don't allow any deductions from positive or ceremonial law. If you go back to Calvin and Knox and all these early men, um, they opposed Roman Catholic practices, which were mostly deductions from Old Testament examples. They didn't allow it because they said, look, when it comes to moral law, you can deduce things. But when it comes to positive law or laws about worship, you, you can't deduce from those because they're really just arbitrary. They're whatever God says goes. I mean, there's nothing intrinsic to water and baptism that makes it sacramental. God infuses it with meaning and makes it a sacrament. The same thing with the Lord's table. So you can't deduce that because, you know, because we do this in um, at the Lord's Supper, we could also then go do this or that. No, that's never been allowed in Reformed regulated churches. And if you try to think through, you know, what are any other things that the Reformed churches do in worship that is a deduction from the Old Testament, I think you will have a very difficult, if not impossible, time finding any. And that's right, because worship ceremonies go with covenants. And Christ has instituted the new covenant and a new way of worship in spirit and truth with different, yes, related, but different sacraments. And so although the Passover is related to the Lord's Supper, because it's a positive institution of worship, we don't go back to the Passover and say, well, who should come to the table? How should we do it? Should we, put, should we all be forced to put all of our clothes on because we're going to leave in a hurry at the Lord's Supper? Does the bread have to be leavened? On and on the list could go. No, we don't go to the Old Testament to deduce the New Testament sacrament. We don't do that for preaching. We don't do it for prayer. We don't do it for the benediction. We don't do it for any of these things. 
but we do it for baptism for some reason. We relate it to, to circumcision and then deduce. But the regulative principle does not allow deductions for ceremonies. It does not allow deductions for positive laws. Now, for some of you, you've never heard this idea before, because as Baptists, you don't know anything about that stuff. <laughs> Let me just tell you, though, this used to be, this was for 300 years, perhaps the major argument as what we would call Reformed Baptists to their Reformed brethren. Why are you inconsistent here, they would politely say. I hope it was politely. Why, why are you inconsistent? You don't do this anywhere else. right? Now, I'm not in any way judging the motives of someone who says, but I think I have good reasons to do that. Well, you stand before God, and you ought not to follow me, you ought to follow God. I'm simply trying to point out that if you, if, if, if we follow Reformed, Covenantal, Protestant principles of interpretation and other things, I believe we'll be Baptists. I'm not a Baptist in spite of being Reformed. I'm a Baptist because I'm Reformed. I'm not a Baptist in spite of being Covenantal. I'm a Baptist because I'm Covenantal. Right Now, a person may argue I'm right or wrong, but please understand, Reformed Baptists are Reformed. We may reach wrong conclusions, we may reach right conclusions, but we're Reformed and we're arguing it on the same basis. We believe with more consistency than those who continue to practice a deduction from an old covenant worship practice or covenantal practice. All right? Um, Again, are we allowed to practice any positive ceremonies from the Old Covenant in the New Covenant worship? Anything not commanded or exampled by the Apostles? No. Um, and so we, we reject um, these deductions as illegitimate. As not even a question about whether they're rightly made or not, but that for positive law, they're simply not allowed. And that's good reformed, that's a good reformed principle that we completely agree with. Um, remember, the New Testament church is not built on the foundation of Abraham. Yes, he's our father in the faith. Amen all day. But the New Testament church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. So if they didn't practice or command infant baptism, can we in faith practice it? Well, we, we cannot. We believe we cannot. All right? So that's the first fundamental answer um, to why I'm Reformed and I'm not. Uh, I'm not one who can baptize anyone but who has made a, a believable profession of faith. Um, because deductions in worship simply aren't allowed by the regulative principle. In, in anything about the church, not just in worship, but in, in its structure, in, um, in its mission, 
you know, we fight hard against people who say, it's to go, it's to make disciples, it's to baptize, it's to teach them everything, and it's to do justice in the world through political movement. We go, nope, you're not allowed to add that. Jesus didn't add that. Nope, out of bounds. We're not against justice, but we're not against baptism. <laughs> but Jesus and the apostles set the terms for the church. We don't say, yes, I know there are elders and deacons in the church. Those are positive commandments of God in, in, in the covenant. Um, but there's nothing wrong with adding a third office or a fourth or bishops or popes or metropolitans or, or women pastors or on and on the list could go. No, there are only two. Why? Because we're narrow-minded bigots? No, because of the regulative principle of the church. When it comes to positive institutions, we are not allowed to add to, take away, or deduce from what God has given us. So we don't just say, well, just having a pastor is enough, or just having a board of deacons is enough. Nor do we say it's okay to add um, eight other offices. We, we don't allow any of those things. We don't allow ourselves, God willing, to change the terms on which these things are done. Why? Because God regulates the church, and he's given us the fullness of it. We cannot deduce from positives. All right? questions or comments or and if you'd like to follow this up privately I'm glad to do that but any any questions or thoughts about that again this is one that historically if you read um, if you read uh, men like Abraham Booth one of my favorites from the late 1700s a self-taught Arminian Baptist that God uh, changed his mind and turned him into what we would call a Reformed Baptist. He lived at the time of uh, Andrew Fuller. He supported missionary efforts, etc. Uh, but he wrote a, a three-volume set on uh, what he called Pado-Baptism Examined. This is a really interesting set of books because what he does is he doesn't actually make any of the standard Baptist arguments. He never quotes a Baptist. What he does is he sets out Reformation principles, principles that all the Reformed agreed upon, himself included, and then he showed how infant baptism breaks those, and he does it only by quoting mostly continental from the Latin, which you know, doesn't help me, so I'm glad it's in English in his book. Um, authors. He, he just quotes Pado-Baptist authors. And he, he's not doing this nastily. What he's trying to show is that the consistent Reformed Christian is a credo-Baptist. Right? And this is one of the big arguments through history. Now, that's largely been lost in the last century simply because Baptists have, have strayed far away from their Reformed heritage. Right? We're just, in many respects, in the last generation, we're just now relearning the regulative principle of worship, let alone the broader regulative principle of the church. But these things were well known. This is a 400-year argument, debate, right? And 
the arguments are pretty much the same on both sides um, over this time. They really haven't changed much. But it was reading these men that turned me from what I expected to end up being. And much to my surprise, I'm a Baptist. Um, because I read Pado Baptists. Uh, again, any uh, enough about me? Any any questions or comments or thoughts?